Welcome to the National Museums of Scotland website. I'm Lee Randall, and today I'm speaking with David Forsyth, the Senior Curator of Scottish History and the Diaspora, and Maureen Barry, the Exhibitions Officer. Our topic is the new exhibition, Mary, Queen of Scots, which opens on the 28th of June and runs until the 17th of November. Now, this exhibition portrays Mary as a vibrant, charismatic monarch and emphasizes her years spent ruling Scotland. So I thought we could start by setting the scene. Mary, who's spent most of her life in France, is a young widow, and she decides to return to Scotland. I think the interesting thing is that Mary spent several years in France, several formative years in France. She was sent there as the potential bride for the Dauphin and the marriage took place when they were potentially teenagers. It wasn't a love match but they had respect for each other and they cared for each other and and the death of the Dauphin was very traumatic. It was one of three family deaths that occurred in a very short period for Mary, 18 months, and that was the death of her her father-in-law Henri, King of France, who she was very close to and who had always said things you know, about Mary that he, he thought she was the most beautiful child he'd ever seen and I think he had a lot of respect for Mary. He was also very shrewd that Mary was a dynastic pawn and Mary was extremely useful by uniting the three countries for him. He spent a lot of time planning and and at the time of his death he didn't have time to put those plans into practice. But Mary had little choice really other than to return to Scotland. I mean she could have remained in France but she was a young woman with ambition and I think she saw the opportunity to come back to Scotland, reign in Scotland, and stake her claim on the English throne. She got into a bit of a stooshie with Elizabeth, didn't she, when she could not secure her safe passage from the Queen of England because Elizabeth wanted her to ratify the Treaty of Edinburgh, whereas Mary wanted her to say, yes, you are my heir, should I die without children. And was this not a big problem right from the get-go? I think it goes back further than that. I think that Mary had always, and, and, and quite rightly, had a claim to the English throne, the Scottish throne, and the French throne through marriage. And she was encouraged by her father-in-law, Henry the the, the Second, to unite the three countries. And Scotland was the, the, the device, the tool, if you like, to do that. That, that was the way to force rule on England, if you like, by this marriage that had been brokered between Henry II's son and Mary, Queen of Scots. So Elizabeth wanted to put a stop to that. She saw Mary as an upstart, if you like, that Mary had no claims on the English throne. And from the very beginning, when Mary Tudor died and Elizabeth became queen, Henry actively encouraged Mary to display the English arms in her coat of arms and Elizabeth never forgot this. Interestingly they were cousins, they never met they were women, they were rulers they were cousins, you would think there would be so much in common but like so many situations that didn't happen they were absolute opposites in character, nature rule but Mary never ever forgot that she was born a queen and born to rule. Was Mary's sensation of being a queen primarily about a sense of privilege or did she also feel a sense of responsibility that a monarch had certain quite serious responsibilities to enact? I think Mary took her role very seriously. I mean, she could have quite happily stayed in France and enjoyed a lifestyle there. And given the early years of her reign in Scotland, when she came back as a young woman, She wanted to to rule. I mean, she didn't rule on her own. She had the support of her brother and his advisors and so on. And I think she needed that support. But 
She wasn't scared of a fight. She literally would ride at the head of her own army. She would take on opponents like John Knox. Albeit once he left the room, she would collapse in tears. She still had an aura, a bearing that she had a duty to rule. And I think that's that's the important thing about Mary. And this is, this is the thing about this exhibition. We have not dwelt on the death or the romanticism of Mary, Queen of Scots. We've mm-hmm. concentrated on a woman, flesh and blood, false warts, and looked at her time in Scotland. That's the biggest part of the exhibition, her time in Scotland. And I think people will be pleasantly surprised by the different Mary that we show. So what was Scotland like at that time? I mean, in Italy and on the continent, the Renaissance was in full flower, but we all know that it was a bit later happening in further west. What was Scotland like? I think we've got to watch here. I mean, Mary is obviously a Renaissance monarch, but her father and her grandfather were both Renaissance princes. These are men who were kings of a you know a fairly impoverished country off the northwest coast of Europe, but a country nonetheless that punched well above its weight, a country which had ambitions, a monarchy which had ambitions to be Renaissance princes. So really, in a sense, the Renaissance was already sort of taking place in Scotland. Clearly, continental Europe was where it was at. Mm-hmm. And Mary comes from one of the richest nations in France, one of the most glittering, splendid courts, to the Scottish court, which is much on a much smaller scale. But it's the ambition of the Stuart monarchy that I think is interesting. And Mary continues that. And of course, continues the influences that her mother, Mary of Guise, brought to Scotland as well. And what was the reaction when she pitched up at the Port of Leith after this very swift journey across the sea? What were the Scottish people like? What was their reaction to her? Well, of course, she arrives fairly in the morning when there was, wasn't a welcoming party. But once word gets around, and after she's finished breakfast at Leith, um, she was, there was an excitement in Scotland. She's a, a young monarch coming back to take over her personal reign in her kingdom. So there'd be great excitement. People would be pleased to see her. They'd be intrigued. They'd be curious to see what this beautiful queen, who was just a, a young girl when she left Scotland, what she was going to look like. Now, certainly one of the things that would have concerned them, am I correct that Scotland had only been Protestant for a year when Mary came back? Yes. Yeah, so the Reformation really um, is, if you like, codified and legalised by the Scottish Parliament in, in 1560. So it's only just a year later. What's interesting about Scotland is, though that it was ironically becomes a very reformed and Calvinistic country, it was one of the one of the last countries to sort of have the Reformation touch it. But very, very quickly does the Reformation take hold within Scotland. And clearly, what's important, the Lords of the Congregation, who are a group of nobles who are involved in basically in the deposition of of Mary of Guise, Mary's mother, the Reformation has political power as well, and that's something we look at. Not just that the the kind of religious aspects, mm-hmm. but the political aspects of the Reformation. But Mary was very, very shrewd, was she not, about keeping her private devotion and her Catholicism very contained and understanding that there is a pragmatic outlook to take about not trying to impose that on the nation. Well, she was shrewd because that's what her half-brother told her <laughs> should, should happen. But no, she was. I mean, I think that they were, she had a very real politic view to that. I mean, when she was in France, we've got to remember various parties came over to entreat with her, Catholic parties, Protestant parties, to sort of try and get the upper hand. And it's interesting that she does go with, with, with Stuart. She does go with the man who's going to become Earl of Murray, her illegitimate half-brother, who's clearly resolutely on the Protestant camp. I mean, John Knox um, preaches the 70s. 
his funeral. So she goes with him and she is prepared to be pragmatic, observe her faith within the bounds only of the Palace of Holyrood House and not try and impose it on, on the people. Of course, the first Sunday she tries to hear Mass, the Protestant mob are baying for her blood at the door and trying to, trying to take the priest out of the palace. But I think that's interesting. We've got to remember that she, she treads a very, very careful, sensible path. I think it speaks to her intelligence as a monarch. Now, one of the hallmarks of her reign in Scotland were her trips around the country. Yes, like um, many monarchs, these progresses were designed to get the monarch around the country so the people could see their king or queen. She, She made her first progress about two weeks after arriving back in Scotland. And that was a nostalgic trip. It was it was to Stirling Palace and Linlithgow Palace and Falkland Palace. It really was... I think a trip down memory lane for Mary and and reacquainting herself with places of significance, where she'd been born, where she was crowned, her mother's residences and so on. But she also used uh, her second progress um, as a way to very much um, stamp down any problems she was going to have in the kingdom, Mm -hmm. um, where she took the Earl of Huntley to task, um, a prominent Catholic lord in the north of Scotland, who wanted to bring back Catholicism to the country. And Huntley was a danger to Mary because the path she was walking was one that that, that she hoped would lead to the throne of England. And the last thing she wanted was Elizabeth upset by what was going on in Scotland. So she took Huntley to task. She really did ride at the head of her troops and was quite happy to do that. But they, they met on the battlefield Huntley dropped down dead before anything could begin of any any sort. Um, so it was really a non-battle. Mm-hmm. But Huntley's body was preserved, brought back to Edinburgh and put on trial a year later mm-hmm. for treason. And what overall, what did her trips around the country achieve? I think the interesting thing about the trips is very much like visits today, royal visits today. It, it raises the profile. It means that people can see that the monarch's interested in them, that she's interested enough to visit their part of the country. And let's face it, Mary does have this myth that she's slept in practically every bed in Scotland. Mm-hmm. And I wondered about that when we began the exhibition, you know, is this another Mary myth? But Mary certainly got herself around Scotland. She certainly saw different parts of her kingdom. And these progress last for days, weeks around the country, where she spent time in the borders in the north of Scotland. She, she really was keen to be seen and to be seen as a vibrant, free-thinking monarch that, that was there for her people. And so were they effective? Yes, in the first early years of her reign, the, the, there was a honeymoon period where the people were delighted to see this young woman. She brought glamour to Scotland. She brought a huge amount of wealth to the palaces. I mean, the palaces were revived with these wonderful tapestries and furniture and um, globes, scientific globes, clocks. I think Scotland felt a certain amount of pride in the glamorous monarch and the fact that they were on a uh, an equal footing with Europe that you know we that, that we had something to be proud about and this young queen was happy to be seen out and about around the countryside. Now there'll be a bit about her fashion and her jewellery in the exhibition won't there? It's obviously very very difficult to acquire costume from that period there is one costume in well it's not a costume it's a doublet um, from around 1561-62 an Italian doublet but these things are very rare and and costume pertaining to Mary doesn't exist. 
So what we did in the exhibition, we decided that so people didn't go away with the wrong impression and have a life-size costume of Mary or constructed or whatever, we decided to place on display a third life-size models of Mary, Darnley, Henry VIII and Elizabeth put together by researching sculpture, paintings, descriptions, diaries. Um, The artist goes into the historical research to not only sculpt the faces, but to use paintings and so on to recreate the costume of the time. So that way we're able to show where these um, research ideas are coming from and show the, 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 the visitor's costume of the period, but not give them the wrong idea that they have seen something that was worn by Mary or some piece of costume from that period because that's wrong in a lot of ways. It's, it's much simpler to say, look, this is what it looked like. This is how the technique was done. And another nice thing is we've not just got this historicist look at costume. We have drawings by Jasper Conran, who was responsible for designing the costumes for the opera Mary Stuarda. So that's lovely. It's looking at how Mary still inspires today and how the costume... Um, the interesting thing about his costume is he designed this beautiful, historically accurate costume for Elizabeth I, but it was constructed in leather to make her look hard and strong. And Mary, he quite, you know, he, he says that Mary was much more softer, fluid, flowing fabrics. So I thought that was a very interesting way for a designer to approach a historical subject. You spoke about how Mary captures people's imagination and she really, really does. Everybody's fascinated by this woman and I wonder, you are now so both so immersed in the story. What do you think it is about Mary that just piques people's interest? I think that the romanticism plays a huge part. It's this underdog. It's someone who was a romantic figure that was ruled by her heart. It was a a love affair that led her down this path. But what we've wanted to show with the exhibition, in which I've been delighted from the time that I was a little girl, I had the, you know, any little girl had those, in the 60s, those dolls by Peggy Nisbet, the the black velvet dress and the the cross and so on. Um, And that's how I think I was brought up, that seeing Mary romantic tragic heroine. Not a bit. This was a woman who lived her life, was dealt a hand of cards, played those cards for right or wrong, had strong will, sometimes made the wrong choices. Who doesn't? But she's not a tragic heroine who went to the block weeping and wailing. She went safe in the knowledge that she was going to walk right into the pages of history. special objects that people will see when they come to the exhibition? I think the thing about this exhibition is this really is a once in a lifetime opportunity to see a wide variety of types of objects jewels, tapestries other clothes, textiles paintings, drawings, sketches books, the Holy Thorn um, which is one of the relics of the the, the medieval Catholic church the exhibition starts off with that and it's the the painting that Peggy Nisbet Dolls is based on, the the, the Blair's memorial painting that wonderful just immediately before execution scene which if you ask any Scottish schoolboy or girl to imagine Mary Queen of Scots that's probably the picture Mm -hmm. she'll come up with they'll come up with and I think the public will be bowled over by the size of the painting our own stilling heads um, that we have on display which has been beautifully worked into a family tree to show Mary's place in the the various dynasties in terms of the jewellery of course as part of the collection of here at National Museum of Scotland we do have the Pennycook jewels Mm -hmm. which we are 
pretty well provenance to being given to one of Mary's um, attendants just before the time of her death. And as Maureen said, you know, we don't want to dwell on the final years and the death, but I think some of the matters of faith, the the the, the, the missal books, the book of hours that she had, you know, in, in the last hours before she faced the scaffold are ones for me that have a very kind of personal resonance that you feel you're getting close to Mary. Mm-hmm. So I'm hoping that, that that people will feel that that closeness to her too. But I think I'm hoping that people will be bowled over by the range of, of objects. But it's also the paper objects too. Now, sometimes paper objects are not that interesting, but we've got some tremendously interesting ones, mm-hmm. objects that haven't been in display in Scotland before. Such as? Well, there's the famous um, Kirkufield sketch spy map or sketch map, and this is a, a narrative drawing of the events around the murder of Lord Darnley. It shows the events of the night. It shows what in the aftermath and of course, the museum is, you know, right on the spot where he are for where the, the body of Darnley and his night servant were, were found. Mm-hmm. Also, that's from the National Archives of the United Kingdom. These, are, these were produced in Scotland and then sent down to England as part of the whole spy mechanism of Cecil and Walsingham mm-hmm. reporting back on what was happening in Scotland. The other one that I like is a very unprepossessing little placard of a mermaid and a hare. Mm-hmm. Now, this was a piece of propaganda. It's only about uh, a little small piece of paper. They were put up all around Edinburgh in the aftermath of the murder of Darnley. The hair is a representation of the Earl of Bothwell, mm-hmm. James Hepburn, that comes from his family crest. The mermaid, which had the initials MR under it, mm-hmm. was a late medieval, early modern symbol for prostitution. Yes, I knew that. So getting towards <laughs> the, the, suggesting that the prostitute, um, the queen, and her lover, the hare, were implicated in this murder. So these are really quite exciting uh, objects. And then, as we go to the time when really things are unravelling for Mary, the time of the Babington plot, Mm -hmm. where she gets involved, makes the mistake of getting involved with with Anthony Babington. Um, Her her own ciphers, we have a copy of one of her own ciphers. Now, they were actually quite simple. Walsingham's, um, one of Walsingham's cipher masters was able to break that. And then what they do, they manage to pers- manage to put in a false note from Mary to persuade Babington to tell her, oh, by the way, who are the other conspirators in this? I'd be interested to know, of course. But then, if you like, the game's a bogey. Mm-hmm. So we have these ciphers, we have this famous um, Babington postscript, and also some of the drawings from the time of the trial and the execution. And again, these are like narrative cartoons. Mary appears in it once, twice, three times as you see a position through coming to trial, sitting down, hearing the charges against her, and of course on the, the final progress, the final hours as she makes it towards the scaffold. And finally, what are you hoping, what's the message you hope people will leave the museum with having gone through this exhibition? We hope that with the different um, approach to the exhibition, because we've we've had specially commissioned films done for the, the, the exhibition, looking at the night of the events that took place, the, the, that fateful night when Darnley was murdered. Um, and I think, as David said, the fact that we are literally above a murder site, that, you know, this this Renaissance murder site, this most notorious murder in Scotland that's never been solved, it's, it's so much evidence was lost, destroyed, tampered with, that we've actually created a, a short film to help the public um, understand how many perpetrators, how many prime suspects there were. Um, we've also... Uh, short films on maps, we have a short film on the Maiden, which was the, the device introduced to Scotland, the humane beheading device as opposed to the, the axe or the, the French sword. We also have a, 
a construction, a reconstruction of Mary's face. We worked with Professor Caroline Wilkinson at Dundee University to reconstruct how Mary might have looked at her time during her rule in Scotland because there are no paintings of that period, that short period in Scotland. So we gave Caroline images of Mary as a young woman, a young girl in France, and we gave her drawings of Mary when she'd been in captivity. So Caroline has produced this image of a young woman, 25 years old, who has had a fairly traumatic time in Scotland. It's a 3D image on screen of Mary as she would have looked during her reign. And and that's, I think, an interesting approach that we've taken. That, and along with handwriting analysis, looking at other women rulers, this is flesh and bones person that you know we're looking at now. It's not a memory. She's 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 a fascinating character, and not just because of this romanticism and the fact that Mary Queen of Scots got her head chopped off. She's a lot more than than just a a story in the history books. There's a lot more behind the woman. Tremendous. And just as a last reminder, the exhibition opens on the 28th of June and runs until the 17th of November.